this is Ron Powell, and you're listening to Fast Forward on the World Transformed. This program presents ongoing conversations with thought leaders who are shaping our future through new ideas and new technologies. In this edition of Fast Forward, Robin Hansen, Research Associate at the Future of Humanity Institute, talks with our host, Phil Bowermaster, about his new book, The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. Why do we do the things we do? Is it possible we're hiding the real reasons for our behavior, even from ourselves? Let's explore. The future begins right now. Live to see it, friends, and welcome to the world transformed, your guide to an astounding future that lies ahead, a future that will be here sooner than you think. I'm Phil Bowermaster, and I'm pleased to introduce our very special guest for today's program, Robin Hansen. Robin is an associate professor of economics at George Mason University and a research associate at the Future of Humanity Institute of Oxford University. He has a doctorate in social science, master's degrees in physics and philosophy, and nine years of experience as a research programmer in artificial intelligence and Bayesian statistics. With over 3,600 citations and 60 academic publications in journals such as Science, IEEE Intelligence Systems, Journal of Public Economics, and the Proceedings of the Royal Society, and many others, he's recognized not only for his contributions to economics, especially pioneering the theory and use of prediction markets, but also for the wide range of fields in which he's been published. His amazing blog is OvercomingBias.com, and it's had some 8 million visits. He's also the author of a book that we've talked about before on this program, The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life When Robots Rule the Earth. And as Ron mentioned, he's got a new book out called The Elephant in the Brain, which we'll be talking about on today's show. Robin Hansen, welcome to Fast Forward on the World Transformed. Great to be back. Well, it's great to have you with us. Why don't we start with a little bit of background. Now, how did you and your co-author, Kevin Simler, become interested in this particular topic, and how did you come to be working together on it? Well, I personally became interested in the topic when I took my postdoc straight out of getting my PhD. My postdoc was in health policy, and I had just spent four years learning a lot of theory, and the postdoc was learning a lot of concrete details about health policy and, and medicine and how we do that in the world. And it turned out a lot of these details didn't make very much sense from the point of view of our standard theory. And that was really puzzling to me. And scratching my head over those two years, I came up with an account that suggested that what was really going on in medicine is that we were using it to show that we care about each other. Uh, Even though we think and talk as if medicine is about getting healthier, that's not what's really going on. So once I had that hypothesis for that area, which was a unusual hypothesis, I was more open to the idea that other things in our lives are also not about what they appear to be about. And so over the next uh, decade or two, I accumulated more ideas for what other things could be about. And I blogged those on my blog, Overcoming Bias, many times. And then Kevin, who was a software engineer in Silicon Valley, uh, read the blog and read many other things. And he decided he liked this point of view. And he took a leave from his software career to pursue his intellectual ambitions, and he approached me. So 
he was thinking of getting a PhD, but then that all doing all the formality for that just seemed too much work and not worth the bother. So he approached me and said, how about you and I just work together? And we worked together and we decided to write this book. And Kevin sees this book as his PhD thesis, as uh, showing that he uh, produced something of value uh, that's been validated by the publisher, Oxford University Press. And I agree with him that uh, this book does, in fact, show that he has produced something of value, uh, this book together, which where now we can tell the world that we have an awful lot of hidden motives. Why go through all that other PhD stuff if what you really want is to make the contribution to knowledge, right? So you write the, you write the book instead. And in fact, maybe modeled a little bit of what goes on in the book by making that choice, didn't he? Well, he was certainly aware that he had more options than somebody else might have thought of. I was going to say, I'm familiar with that idea that we act for reasons other than the reasons that we think from reading Overcoming Bias. And I think we even talked about that a little bit last time you were on the program. But, but why don't we just kind of start from there and tell us very briefly, what, what exactly is this elephant in the brain? What's, what's going on here? So it's a play on the phrase, the elephant in the room. Right. which refers to something that we all know is there but don't want to talk about. And the elephant in the brain is something that's in our brains that we all know is there but don't want to talk about. And that's, in essence, our selfish motives. We prefer to attribute our behavior to the highest-minded motives we can plausibly associate with our behavior. And, in fact, often our behavior is better explained by less high-minded motives, i.e. more selfish motives, and we'd rather not look at that and acknowledge it. I think there's two sides of this, and I want to kind of explore both of those a little bit more deeply. It seems that there's this, this aspect of we hide our motivations for doing things from each other, from other people. And I, I've worked in corporate and in marketing long enough to, to be really familiar with that kind of dynamic. You know, that you, you will put out a message and you want people to buy your stuff. And, you know, your actual motivations for saying all these wonderful things are that you want people to buy your stuff, that kind of thing. That's, it seems to me that's one level of uh, putting a message out there that, that kind of disguises your true motivations. But, but what you're talking about here is a, a little bit deeper even than that, we, where we not only hide our motivations from the people we're communicating with, we actually hide them from ourselves. Why would we hide our motivations from ourselves? What would the advantage of doing that be? Well, we actually have a whole continuum of the degree to which we acknowledge things, including our motivations. So our book is mainly about uh, the comparison between the, the, the most open thing we would claim about our motives and what's mm -hmm. really going on. And to what extent we are aware of this varies a lot from person to person and context to context. And we don't actually go into that much detail trying to explain that variation. Uh, the main thing we want to make clear is that if you were on stage in public making a statement about motivations, there's the usual story you would give there, the, the most public claim you would make uh, for the widest audience. And then as we move away from that context, we talk to you privately, maybe at a bar late at night when you're a little drunk, <laughs> you, you, you might then slide over and, and acknowledge more motivations of other sorts. Uh, but it will vary with context of who you're around and your state of mind and, and what, what things you had just remembered. And for some things, uh, you're not really very much aware at all uh, of your motivations uh, most of the time. And for other things, you're, you're a lot more aware, and it just varies a lot. So 
for example, um, education, you know, the usual thing you would say in public out loud uh, in graduation ceremonies or a politician's speech is that school is about learning the material, becoming a better worker by knowing more things and having more skills. Right. But a lot of people kind of know that that's not why they're going to school, you know, in at least perhaps not in a statement of purpose or graduation speech, but if you talk to them privately, they'll admit they want the degree and they want to get a better job because of the degree and they're not that interested in learning things. Well, then if you go to something like medicine, uh, you'll find that um, people are a lot less aware that they are going to the doctor and pushing other people to go to the doctor in order to show that they care, to let other people show they care about them. In their mind, they're mostly thinking about the health, and they might be quite surprised to be told that it's not about the health so much. So why, you ask, uh, don't we know? Well, uh, the usual story is that it's hard to lie. Uh, actors are paid a lot, and they spent years learning to act because it's hard to act, believably. We give off so many cues in our tone of voice and our body language and the words we choose, etc., even the pauses uh, that tell other people what we're really thinking compared to what we're saying. And when it's important enough to not give off those clues, the simple thing our minds do is just not tell us. So in, in some ways, you'd be a more effective poker player if you were bluffing yourself, right? You wouldn't have all these tells giving away. If, if, if uh, right, as long as you, you still the play the right cards at the right time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a, a standard you know, thing about salespeople say is that a sales, best salespeople are the ones who really believe in their product, no matter right. how crappy it is. Right. And that's because you wouldn't keep selling that product if you didn't. You, you would not be successful because you, 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 theoretically you would give away too much in your behavior around the fact that you didn't actually believe in it and people would, people would pick up on the fact. Right. Now you might think, well, it's just so important to make the right decisions that therefore you, you would just need to be conscious of it uh, even though there's this cost that people could see your leaks. But that brings up the point that our conscious minds aren't actually in control of our behavior nearly as much as we like to think. So there's less of a cost of not being aware of our motives for our behavior because we're not actually making the decisions, at least the conscious part of our minds. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, one, one of the ways I would have phrased that question differently would have just been to ask, because I know you talk quite a bit about evolution in the book, would be to ask, how could we have ever evolved to deceive ourselves? But when you explain it that way, it makes it makes perfect sense. We evolved to deceive ourselves because we can act in our own best interest more easily that way. We can get more of what we want, right? In, in, in the long run, we're kidding, we're kidding ourselves about why we're doing things because that helps us to get what exactly? What are we getting out of the deal? Well, we are changing our, the impression of motives we're giving people. So uh, to go back to basics, humans are different from other primates in that we have social norms. Right. Uh, chimpanzees may compete with each other, and they use very complicated politics to compete with each other, but they're mostly open about it. Whereas for humans, we had weapons and we had language, and that allowed us to have a rule about what you're allowed to do or not allowed to do. And if, some, if one person sees another person violating the rule, they can use language to tell other people about that, and then other people, if they convince them, they can use weapons to enforce their judgment on this person, even if they're especially strong. And these social norms that humans have allow a lot more peace and, you know, less violence and less conflict in the human groups, which is great. Uh, but these norms often are expressed in terms of motives. So if I hit you and I did it on accident, that's okay. And we'll just right. ask me to be more careful next time. If I hit you on purpose, well, that's not okay. <laughs> and that violates an important norm and we have to do something about it. 
So to the extent I don't want to be accused of norm violations and I'm afraid of being punished for norm violations, I'm trying to manage the impressions I give about my motives, for my behaviors. So in fact, most of us, most of the time when we're doing something, part of our brains, and it's a pretty big part, is thinking, what could I say about my motives here? <laughs> what story could I be tell about why I did this such that it sounds like a reasonable thing to be doing? What, what sort of accusations could somebody level against me that, that I would be having nefarious motives here and, and how could I defend myself? We're constantly working on that story about ourselves, why we did what we did and why it was a reasonable thing to do. And that's why we care a lot about our motives because we care a lot about how we can explain our motives to other people should they accuse us of norm violation. One of the things I found really interesting in the book is this idea that why do humans have such large brains? Well, probably for the exact reason you just described. You need all that brain power to constantly be so sneaky all the time, to constantly be coming up with these kind right. of rationales. Well, the, the trick is that we don't enforce the norms equally or fairly. Right. So if right. we just consistently enforce the norms, then they would take away a lot of the advantage that, say, chimpanzees have from their huge brains to figure out all their complicated politics. If we just enforce the usual norms to share our food and play fair and not hit each other and, and, and be nice, then there wouldn't be that much of an advantage the complicated politics. Uh, and so we could get away with smaller brains. That would be great. But in fact, even though we have these norms and on the surface, they do seem to take away many of the advantages from complicated, you know, Machiavellian politics. In fact, we have the biggest brains of all. And our explanation for that is because um, instead of directly doing politics out in the open, we now do it indirectly we pretend to follow the norms, but we're paying a lot of attention carefully to when we can not follow the norms and say we did, when we should let somebody else get away with not following the norms because they're an ally and will help us in some way, et cetera. And that's really complicated. Yeah, it's like we're constantly managing these exceptions around the margins of the norms, right? Explaining why. There's a lot of these exceptions, and that's something that a lot of our readers might not really get is, is that uh, our norms are often, you know, noticed more in the breach rather than the satisfaction of them. And we are really very, we're not very aggressive in enforcing norms. Uh, we, right. we pretend to be enforcing the norms. We often let people buy on, on the mildest of excuses. Uh, one example we give is uh, people drinking alcohol in public. So, you know, in our societies, we used to have a rule against people drinking alcohol in public out on the street. Police know that's a rule and they feel obligated if they see someone drinking that they have to do something about it, but they don't really want to and they'd rather do something else. It doesn't seem like a high priority to them. And so right. if you put your alcohol in a paper bag and just drink out of the bottle through the paper bag, uh, the police will just let you go. Now, they all know anybody drinking it's in public not chocolate a paper milk bag. In a paper bag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, this, you know, this isn't rocket science, yeah. but it still just gives them enough of an excuse to look the other way. And that's true about a lot of our norm evasion. The reason why it's often quite easy to evade so many norms is that the people around us are really not very, trying very hard to enforce the norms. We have a norm that you should enforce norms, but we allow people pretty thin excuses to not enforce norms when they have an excuse. Like, all I saw was a paper bag. I didn't see them drinking the alcohol. Right, right. Now, one of the fun and kind of disturbing revelations in the book is how these hidden agendas that we have show up just everywhere across the board in the human experience. So if you, you know, if you go to church or if you give to a charity or if you go to school or if you vote or whatever, it seems like whatever you're doing, your motivation is going to be somewhat askance from what you thought it was. Now, my, my question to you is, when you were researching the book, is there an instance of a hidden motivation 
that you found the most surprising? Or was there some conclusion about hidden motivations that you were maybe personally the most reluctant to accept? What, what, is, the, you know, what is the biggest shock for you in, in putting this book together? Well, the whole book was motivated by the idea that we have a lot of hidden motives. So right. uh, my colleague, for example, Brian Kaplan has a book out, The Case Against Education, and his major point there is that education is much about signaling. And uh, if you just take one area of life, say education, and you say it's not about what it seems to be about, that just seems to be an extreme, hard-to-believe claim. And right. however much evidence he marshals in favor of that, if you see he's claiming this one area of life is this weird exception to everything else, it just seems too strange to believe. And you're really going to look really carefully at any one piece of evidence until you're willing to believe that. And to overcome that, it seemed like the only way to do that is to really just show you that we seem apparently to have hidden motives in a lot of areas. Uh, to overwhelm you with <laughs> how many areas we seem to have hidden motives in to make it plausible that in each area we have hidden motives because in look in all the other areas we seem to have hidden motives. And you know that's in some sense the big surprise from the beginning when I first thought about say medicine having hidden motives. Uh, I was willing to invoke an alternative hypothesis, but I didn't really expect how wide this would be, how many other areas we would also plausibly have hidden motives for. And that itself, that breadth was a surprise. I think medicine is one of the areas that's most surprising to our readers. Uh, probably most people who just heard this and heard me mention medicine, you don't believe me yet, nor should you. It sounds crazy, right? So I have to go through some evidence to convince you of that, which we haven't done on this show yet. Uh, but well, why don't we actually? Why, why don't we take a moment and do that? If you could just give a if if medicine is a good example for that, why don't we take one of these and kind of talk through it? Why would why would medicine, for example, be about anything other than making ourselves healthy? What other what right. other motivations so the, could we possibly have? So the structure in each of these areas is going to be to say there's a usual standard story, and then we're going to identify a bunch of puzzles, a bunch of things that don't make that much sense from the point of view of the usual story. And then we're going to have an alternative story that's just as simple, but it makes a lot more sense of the puzzles. Now, just to be clear, almost every area of life has lots of things going on. Humans are complicated. The world's complicated. So all the different motives you could possibly imagine all have some fractional influence on each area of our life. The, the question is the proportions. Right. And so the usual story uh, does you know, explain some fraction of behavior. That's why it works as an excuse. <laughs> It nothing really works as an excuse unless it happens some of the time. Right. So it can be plausible in each case that that might be what's going on. So medicine is partially about health in the sense that there are times and places where uh, we choose uh, substantially to get the better health outcome. Uh, but it's just not as much as we like to think. We usually think that's the main thing, that's the overwhelming thing that's going on as we're choosing for better health. And there's a number of puzzles that don't make sense from that point of view. So one puzzle is that there's actually very little correlation between health and medicine. That is, if you look at geographic regions where they spend more on medicine, such as counties, hospital areas, even whole nations, uh, those places are not on average healthier. Uh, we also see that when we've done randomized experiments where we've given some people cheaper medicine and then seen that they use more medicine because it's cheaper, we compare those people to the other people that we randomly gave more expensive medicine. We see that the people who have more medicine because it's cheaper are not healthier. 
So that's one big puzzle. There's actually not much of a relationship between health and medicine. A second puzzle is that we actually know of a bunch of other things where there are substantial correlations between health and those other things. This includes air quality, it includes social status, it includes living in rural areas, it includes exercise and sleep. Um, and these other things that have big correlations with health, people are remarkably disinterested. I've taught health economics many times, and as soon as you start talking about policy that might try to promote these other things that seem correlated with health, people just get yawning and bored, and they can't imagine why we should bother. That just right. seems pointless. But as soon as you start talking about medicine, where we spend 18% of GDP and we are heavily regulated, people are all over it and they're really fascinated by it. And even after you tell them there's very little correlation between health and medicine, they're still overwhelmingly obsessed with medicine. So that's another puzzle about medicine is we are really focused on it compared to other things that have much bigger relationships to health. And what's interesting about that, take, take this one as an example then. So what do I do with this information now? Do I stop going to my doctor because it's not going to do me that much good? Or, you know, if, if my chest starts to hurt, do I skip the ER? I mean, you know, how far do you take the, the skepticism that, that I now have about my motivations, I guess? Well, these, uh, the data suggests that uh, on the margin, when people get more medicine, that isn't correlated with health. Right. That doesn't say that the medicine that we all get isn't useful. Right. So um, if you're going to be skeptical, you should be more skeptical about the marginal medicine, the additional medicine. So, for example, you might ask yourself, okay, if I had to pay for this out of my pocket with my own cash, would I pay for it? Right. And if you might say no, but I'm going to do it because it's subsidized because I've got insurance, then you might pause and then say, well, but maybe this won't help. Because this is the extra medicine that people get when these experiments uh, show that that extra medicine doesn't seem to help. But if it's the kind of thing you would pay out of your pocket, the kind of thing basically everybody gets, not something that some people get and other people don't, well, then this data is not speaking so much to that. So just cut back, basically. I have a blog a post I did a while ago uh, at Cato Unbound called Cut Medicine in Half, where I argued just get half as much. Right. And there's a bunch of different ways you could cut out which half, but the key point is uh, if you had to pay for it out of your own pocket, uh, you wouldn't pay for it. Uh, cut out that half. Right. And, and wearing the strict economics hat, think of the benefits there, right? If we weren't spending all that money on... Right. So 18% of GDP uh, cuts down to 9%. You're saving 9% of GDP. We all get a 9% raise. Right. Not only that... People who are going to get more medicine, they, they lose more time in these experiments. Uh, the people who got more medicine, they lost another day of their year. Sure. Uh, wow. Going to the doctor, doing, dealing with all the medical things. So there's, there's cascading, there's downstream costs, and probably the more you looked at it, you'd, you'd find right. more of those. But, I mean, the key point is, when we say there are hidden motives, it doesn't mean they are illegitimate or unreal motives. So right. our hidden motive here is to show that we care and to let people show us that we care, and that's an important motive. And if you fail to do that, you will suffer real costs. Uh, we try to show our allies and our associates that we care about them, and we want to let them show that they care about us and let other people see that, to let other people see that we're cared about. And if we fail to do these things, we can suffer substantial personal costs in seeming to be uncaring or uncared for. And so our overall thesis is that these hidden motives are reasonable things for a social and competitive creature to be doing. And so it's not so much that we, we should be changing our behavior greatly, uh, 
is that we should realize that we have different motives than we say. And that will allow us to change our behavior somewhat, but perhaps not as much as you might think. Uh, you know, if, 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 even if you know all this, you still might, when you sign up for a health insurance plan, sign up for a generous one to show your spouse and family that you care about them. If you say, I've decided not to get you much medicine because it's not very helpful, that may not go down very well. Uh, on its own, right? That, that's, yeah, that doesn't sound that great. You've got to find other ways to show you care, maybe more effective ones. But you, you might try to, but it's hard. So yeah. once a society has a bunch of habits about what behaviors are interpreted as signaling what, it's hard to deviate from that greatly and, and make up a whole new set of signals. Uh, right. My example, an example would be, you know, traditionally people, when they're, you know, dating and meeting other people, they try to show off how smart, how strong, and how rich they are. And traditional signals for showing these things are, is you use big words and, and, and reference complicated things, and you, uh, you know, you... You use your body to do strong things to show that you're strong and you uh, show off having rich cars and uh, rich clothes and those are traditional ways to show these things. Now in the modern world in principle you could show all those things with an IQ test and a bank statement and a doctor's health test and just wave those things around and right. honestly that won't go very well. <laughs> Yeah, show up on the first date with that and see if there's a second date. I kind of right. So it's just, I mean, they do functionally signal the same things, but they would also be showing a high degree of nonconformity and, and lack of social awareness. Right. One of, one of the chapters I was really interested in was the one about art, and it leads me to this question. Is it fair to say that the elephant in the brain in some instances amounts to the real reason people do things in certain contexts? It, that, for example, I, I really like the part about art because you talk about we, we say we're creating beauty and we're trying to reach an audience and we're trying to convey a deep emotion. But really why an artist does it is because they want to show off and they want to gain status. So in, in a lot of instances, the elephant in the brain is is just it, it's simply pointing out the real reason people do things. Is, is that fair to say? Well, reasons happen at different levels of distance from behavior. So any event, anything that happens in the world has an immediate cause, a very local cause, the things closest to it that cause it. And it also has more distal or distant causes far away. So in our analysis, we're mostly focusing on the most distant causes, the most fundamental basic causes of why these behaviors exist, why evolution produced them, why we consistently do them, even though you know different cultures and et cetera vary them. But that distant cause uh, has to affect immediate behavior through some chain of causation that passes through closer things like our feelings and our thoughts. And so there can be multiple causes at multiple levels. So for example, in art, you may look at something and say, wow, that's beautiful. And that can really be true, and you can really feel arrested and stunned even by it and compelled to look at it or even buy it directly from that feeling that you immediately have, wow, this is beautiful. Or as an artist, you could feel compelled to create something. And as you're creating it, feeling, wow, this is beautiful. I'm creating something beautiful. I love doing this. That can be part of your immediate local causation that makes you create art or admire art. But we still have to ask from a larger scale, well, why does that exist? Why does that 
emotional habit, that tendency exists. Where did that come from? Why would a creature that evolved in a very competitive world have evolved a capacity and habit like that? And that's where these other more distant explanations are. So uh, our book is mostly about these distant explanations, these fundamental explanations, but they still have to channel you know, in detail through some local explanation. And so they can both be true at different levels of explanation. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And that is a bit of a relief to those who worry that the whole thing, all of art is just the emperor's new clothes. You know, there, some of that other stuff must be going on. Or would we really have kept at it as a civilization? Or would humanity really have just kept doing it forever? Maybe we would, even for even even just for the even just for the kind of hidden reasons that we're that, that we're pursuing it for. But but that leads me to one one final question here. And uh, b- before we before we have to wrap it up, I think there's a there's a question about what you do with this information when you have it, right? Because if we've evolved to act selfishly and to deceive ourselves and others about why we're doing things, does it make sense just to kind of go with it? Just embrace the fact that we're selfish? I mean, would there be an advantage to being honest with yourself about why you're doing the things when everybody else is confused about why they're doing it? Is, is that uh, one of your one of your methods? Evolution designed you not to be aware of this. <laughs> okay. So if your environment is like the one that evolution envisioned for you, uh, then that's the right thing to do. Uh, you're better off not being aware if you are in the median typical case that evolution envisioned when it designed you to be unaware of these things. Uh, now, for some people, the world is different than evolution envisioned for them. And uh, for some people, it's more important that they understand what's going on. This can include, say, managers or salespeople. Uh, it can also include social scientists. So I'm a social scientist, and I think that an awful lot of policy analysis uh, goes wrong because people make naive assumptions about our motives and then they build a whole policy edifice on top of that. And what they often find is that people are just not interested in the solutions that are developed on the basis of assuming that the motives we give are our real motives. And so I especially think policy analysts should pay attention to this. Uh, they should pay whatever personal price it costs to be aware of these things and to perhaps be less easily uh, able to project good-looking motives to the people around them because they really need to understand what's going on. That makes sense. Well, listen, Robin, I want to wish you and Kevin all the best with the book. Folks, it is available as of today. To say it is an eye-opening read is a bit of an understatement. I think everyone is going to be fascinated by what you've outlined here. And uh, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Fast Forward on the World Transformed. My thanks to Ron Powell and our special thanks once again to Robin Hansen for being with us today. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us once again as we continue to explore a future that's unfolding before us in unexpected ways and at a breathtaking pace. Until next time, live to see it. To learn more about Robin Hanson, visit overcomingbias.com or elephantinthebrain.com. To learn more about this program, visit worldtransform.com. Thanks for listening.